Hello and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon. And today I'm here with Henderson Cole. You may know Henderson because he runs a great blog called The Alternative. As well, he's an entertainment lawyer, which you can find out more about at hcolelaw.com. We have a really cool conversation, a lot about streaming, how contracts have changed in the music business, all sorts of stuff that I think if you want to get a little bit deeper of a look into what's actually happening and how the music business is changing, this is a great conversation to listen to. He's a super insightful guy, and I've really liked a lot of what he's written on Twitter and on his blog, so I wanted to have him on. Before we get started, I want to tell you that you may have noticed in this podcast feed that there's chapters of my last book, Processing Creativity, that are going up. Till July 1st, those will be available for free, and until that date as well, I'm selling the ebook for 99 cents on Amazon because I want to spread the word. So if you're enjoying that, please, 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 please tell other people about it. The reason I'm doing this is I want these ideas out in the world and I want them to spread. So if you can help me do that, I would really appreciate it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Henderson. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out. And please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So how do you tell people what you do if they're kind of clueless about music? Oh, wow. Well, it is kind of something that I have to explain a lot because a lot of the people that I work with have never really worked with an entertainment lawyer before. Um, So a lot of what I do, I work on the transactional side. So it's a lot of negotiating contracts, um, making sure that uh, the, the artist's rights are protected and also that they get a good deal uh, when they sign to a record label or with a manager or anyone. So, so yeah, it's, it's a lot of that sort of stuff. And then also um, I work uh, a little bit just correct, like creating opportunities for artists too. I feel like nowadays to be working in entertainment, you have to be flexible and you have to be able to do a lot of different things. Um, so I also try and like use different people I know, like if I know a label that might like an artist or I know an art, uh, an artist that might fit a label well that I'm working with, try and make that connection happen. Nice. And so is there more than just uh, shopping labels? Like what are some of the other opportunities that you might introduce an artist to? Well, that's that like that is a lot of what gets brought to me because that's the main thing that people, when they're new in the music industry, they're like, oh, I always wanted to be on a record label. Like I'm tired of releasing my stuff my own. Uh, but also there's like managers, there's also, uh, music publishing is a big thing mm-hmm. that 
lot of younger artists don't really understand very well. Um, and just making sure a lot of what I do too is just make sure that the artist is getting all the royalties that they're entitled to mm. uh, because the system is a little difficult uh, and the, the paperwork can get very complicated. Uh, but I, I try and make sure that they're actually getting all those revenue streams these days because uh, that that's how the business is right now. You have to make sure that all these little revenue streams from all different things, streaming, licensing, uh, all gets back to the uh, actual artist. Yes, that makes total sense. So why don't we talk a little bit more about the, the lawyer says, um, is there things in contracts you're seeing these days that like really need to go and are like antiquated parts of the music business? What are you seeing in contracts these days that uh, I feel like it's always a thing that uh, people aren't being served properly by what they get handed by labels dash whoever. Yeah. Well, I think, I think one thing that's happening now in just the whole music industry is that sort of the standard terms for what a contract should include has totally been washed away by the, the world of streaming. And, and now what an artist can ask for and what artists should be asking for is a lot different than even like 10 years ago. Mm. Um, and, and some things that are sort of dated that have lasted into these contracts is that the way that these contracts are structured with a lot of bigger labels is that there's a huge um, expenses that go into the contract, a huge recoupable amount that builds up, and uh, the artist is actually only getting a small percentage of the royalties. And that's even after the, the costs are paid back. So if you get in a situation where an artist is only getting 15% of their streaming royalties from their label, and they have $40,000 in expenses to pay off, you can see how that will never get paid off. Yes. And you end up, you end up where the, the artist has literally had a successful record, but has never seen a single dollar from the sales from that record. So um, I, I really try and discourage artists from signing those type of deals. But like I said, they are the normal deal. They are the standard major label or even bigger indie label deal. And uh, the way that they're set up is really just doesn't fit with the amount of sales that you're going to be able to do these days don't really make those deals uh, feasible anymore. So what we're talking about here too, to, so for the audience's sake too, is like, you know, like uh, one of the most common cons I've seen throughout the years is like a band can sell 200,000 copies, but the label's like, well, we reinvested that into tour support and advertising, but we took our cut and your cut's this small piece of the pie. And so they've never been paid. Like, you know, there's some records I I've worked on that are literally in the like, $300,000 range where the artist's like, I've never had a dollar from the label. We're kind of, what do you do to prevent something like that? Like, what's the structure look like in that? Well, yeah, that that is sort of also why I got into music law, because I heard those stories. A mm. lot of the bands I had grown up listening to um, had never really seen royalties. But there's a, there's a lot of different ways to prevent that. Number one, you want to keep your recoupable costs as low as you can. Um, and a lot of different things are going to go into that, uh, like the advance that you get paid if you get one, mm. and recording cost, and the, the cost to produce uh, like physical records and vinyl. Those are obviously all things that you're going to need. Um, but where, the, where these record labels can sort of uh, exploit this is when they don't have any sort of control on how much they can spend on advertising. They don't mm. need to get the artist's permission uh, to spend more. So they can just spend and spend and spend, and the artist really has no way of reeling that in and ever being able to pay back all these costs. Um, so one thing that I try and make sure to have is just 
controls where the artist has to agree to the budgets for um, for for things like marketing and also other things that when you when you get to a higher end artist, if you spend a hundred thousand dollars on a music video, how are you going to make that money back, right? So. Uh, a lot of those type of things you really need to um, make sure that you have good control of. Interesting. Uh, so is this basically that then management will just always approve whatever budgeting there is and otherwise they can't, you know, I work at a major label. It's like, I see what some of these things happen uh, happens here is like, you know, it's like, oh, well, lunch, you know, I, I can remember 15 years ago, like lunch is on Jay-Z and you're like, hmm, I've never met Jay-Z before and you probably don't even really work with him. I don't know how that's happening. Like, is it really yeah. micro or is it more just percentages that the management pro- uh, negotiates when you do something like that? I like to have the the band and when I work on these negotiations, like I said, have some sort of check and balance system where it's like any expense over a certain amount needs to be approved by the artist or mm. at least the plan of the like marketing needs to be approved by the artist. Um, but on the other end of that, you also want to make sure that the percentages that the label is paying you back are are good percentages. Um, and, and like I said, these deals, the normal deal is sort of fading away. So in the past, a 50-50 split of, of royalties was ridiculous. It would never happen. And nowadays you hear that that can happen and does happen. Um, even at major labels sometimes if the artist has enough leverage. Mm, wow, I didn't realize major labels were doing that. So why don't we get into that since I think there's a thing that you and I talk about on Twitter a good amount, which is a lot of people seem to blame Spotify and then uh, a lot of people say, no, it's actually the record labels because when you see what, you know, if you're a band that's just putting your record up through TuneCore or DistroKid and you see what you're actually getting paid versus what these artists all, through labels all say they're getting paid, it's a drastically different game. What are you seeing with uh percentages and what are you seeing that is viable in that argument well well there's sort of there's sort of two different sides to that right there's two different problems mm-hmm. number one is that i think at least that the spotify royalties that they pay out in general are low mm-hmm. uh, i think that most people would agree that they're pretty low and they seem to be at least staying stable um but maybe even decreasing a little bit but I don't really blame Spotify exactly. I'm not one of those people who's like, Spotify is destroying the music industry. I just think that the model hasn't really found a way to be profitable where these streaming companies are losing money because they are paying out huge amounts of royalties and not taking in that much money. Um, but how do we get to a system where when they are paying people, with, even before the labels are involved, where, people, where artists can survive on hmm. uh, uh, a streaming revenue stream. So that's number one. But on the other end, it is what we talked about, where if if the label is taking in all of the streaming royalties or almost all of it until the costs are repaid and the costs never get repaid, then the artist is getting nothing from streaming, right? And and it, it really hurts because that's those streaming dollars, maybe they maybe they weren't sales, but People, people only have so much money that they're going to throw out there to spend on music every year. And if most of it's going into streaming services and maybe they'll go to a few concerts, buy a few albums, but if most of their money's going towards streaming services and then the artists aren't seeing that money back, then it can really be a problem where it's like, uh, wait, wh- how are these people going to survive? Yes. I, 
I guess it's it, like, you know, it, it, it is such an interesting thing because I think we, you know, like I remember David Lowry, who does the tricordist, did like this interview where he said, like, you know, it's really necessary that there's a force that pushes uh, streaming services to do better. But then there's also this reality, which is that all of these streaming services are losing massive amounts of money because there just isn't the money there yet with what they charge. And yet people aren't signing up for these services at a rate where they can raise the rates, like how Netflix is now basically doing a dollar increase to $2 increase every year. Um, but then the other inarguable thing is like the latest statistics uh, is basically that piracy is fully dead at this point. Do you see that as well? That like, you know, Spotify's argument that they would kill piracy and bring money back, you know, like Warner just posted a billion dollars earnings, uh, mostly from streaming in one quarter does seem to me like, I'm like, I, while I think we need to push, uh, the streaming services to do better, you're also like, well, I think they're also doing as good as they can with the numbers they're being given. Yeah, I mean, there is. that's why I say that I don't blame Spotify or even Apple Music or any of the others. It's just right now the system has flaws. But mm -hmm. I, I am a Spotify user, and I do think it's better in general for the music economy that people are streaming stuff instead of illegally downloading. So, and, and I think also just from sort of like a utilitarian perspective, the fact that people can go on Spotify and for a small fee or even free with advertisements, listen to whatever music they want and as much music as they want, right? That's, I think, a lot better than when I was younger where the only thing you could do was buy CDs or listen to the radio and CDs were expensive. So mm. if you bought a few each year, then that, that was as much as you could afford. Now you can listen to as many albums as you want. And, and that has reduced, spot, uh, has reduced piracy a ton. Because why would why would you steal MP3s when you could just listen for free yes. to those same songs whenever you want? Um, and, and, and I think it, MP3s in general are sort of fading into streaming. So I think that streaming as a as an idea as, is the future. Mm -hmm. I think that that is where the focus is. Um, and other physical mediums are sort of surviving as sort of a collector's market, but. Streaming is where is where the future is, and that's why I think it's so important that there is that force to push for artists to be compensated. Because if this is if this is going to be the only game in town, if this is going to be the main source of revenue for artists in the future, then we have to make sure that that's a sustainable model, right? Yes, it, it's interesting though, because like then there is the thing of like you know how they could do better. It's like you know everybody's been arguing that there should be a tip jar on every one of these Spotify dash Apple music pages for years. And yet none of them want to actually get into doing that. It seems like that would be the base thing because basically now the, the tip jar of the internet is Bandcamp name your own price releases. And it seems a little silly to me that we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of ridiculous in the way that that's where people do get angry. And I think with good reason at some of these streaming services, where there are simple changes that could be made that would help artists and they just don't seem interested in it or it isn't their priority. Um, and that is how I tell, pe tell bands to sort of feel about uh, people downloading and paying for their MP3s on Bandcamp is if people want to donate money to the band at this point um, because they can just listen to it for free. So it has, to, it has totally reshaped how people think about, okay, where, where, how are my fans supporting me? Um, but like you said, it is hard for these streaming services too, because 
they aren't turning a profit yet. And really, like you said, Warner Brothers turning that huge profit. The only people who are so far really getting huge profits from streaming services are major labels who have uh, control of the system and they have influence on playlists. And then also like the top 1% of artists, even less than 1%, like Drake, who's mm-hmm. doing huge, huge numbers, or um, people who are so big that they can exist outside of the label system completely, uh, like Chance the Rapper, I yes. think, who also um, got like a huge payout when his music was on Apple Music. And for him, okay, that's a great deal, and he maintains control of his music, but the small band that's like barely touring they're not going to be able to uh, pull that sort of deal. thousand percent. So one of the things that uh, also uh, I've seen you talk about on Twitter is uh, algorithmic music uh, stuff, whereas you run a blog called The Alternative, um, where you guys seem to do a lot of the unearthing of bands before anybody hears about them and then they get very big. Um, Can you talk to me about why you don't have as much faith in algorithmic recommendations? I... So so I think there is a place for algorithms and people do seem to enjoy them because they can just leave their streaming service on and it'll keep playing things that they kind of like or maybe they might like. But I think there's still a lot of value um, to music blogs and and websites and just writing about music in general because there's a person, like a person behind that. uh, And the personality that used to exist in like rock radio even, but now has less... Um, done that. And and the same personality that exists in podcasts where people want to hear from other people what they might like. Mm-hmm. It's much different when somebody writes about a band and says like, these are some other bands that if you like, you would like this one. And I, re- I went to their show and they were great people and it was a great performance rather than, okay, that band just appeared on my next song. Like, okay, I heard it for three minutes. I totally forgot about it. I don't really know even the name of the band or whatever. So I think there's still a place for it. It has, but but it, blogs have totally changed since streaming because uh, there's less of a need for reviewing and more just a need for recommending. Yes, recommending and getting to know a little bit more beyond uh, behind the artist. I think is the like what really serves it. But I, I mean, I'm personally one of those people that like if I never saw another record review, I'd probably be really happy about it. Yeah, even even with the alternative, about a year ago, we got rid of our number rating system and just switched to like a good to excellent rating system because mm. there there really wasn't a need for. We would recommend a record and say it's a seven. And the band would say, oh, I'm kind of disappointed. I, I wanted an eight. But mm-hmm. does it matter to the music fan whether it was a seven or an eight, really? No. Yeah. The, the point is, do, 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 is this something that I want to listen to? Should I be listening to this? Um, not, oh, it's a five, and the other record was a four, so it's a little better. No, it's, I think that is sort of... Uh, getting drowned out. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, no one ever feels the same about what that number was, but whereas a for fans of or a recommended if you like is a very relevant point for people. Yeah, and, and, and I think it, it just is less uh, competitive 
we don't we don't we already have a million music award shows and all that and that there's a place for that and rankings and stuff but we don't need every album to be, well this one was an eight and this one was a seven and a half so i won't check out the seven and a half i'll just listen to the eight when maybe maybe that's not your personal taste or the writer who wrote it maybe didn't appreciate it as much as you will you know so yes so since you guys are kind of first to a lot of these bands where are you looking to find your uh, recommendations and find music? Wow. Well, it's actually really cool that people have started to think of the alternative that way because when I first started it way back when I was in college, that was sort of what I wanted to do with it because I would find bands, nobody had really started talking about them yet, and I just wanted to yell about them on the internet and hopefully get hmm. someone else to listen to them. Um, but everyone on the staff sort of has their own tips and tricks, but I think the number one way that we all find music is just from talking to each other on the staff mm. and sort of each recommending music to each other. There are also some other blogs that we really like, like Gray Estates and uh, Gold Flake Thing, mm. um, Track 7, um, Bandcamp. Just surfing Bandcamp, I find so... That's when I find really incredible things. Mm. If I just go on Bandcamp, play an album that I like, like click on Recommended, just keep clicking Recommended until I find some stuff I've never heard of before. And uh, you can find on, that's how you find something that nobody has heard yet. And then you feel really good about yourself, but it, it's not easy promoting those lesser known bands either. So, so now, since I'm a old man and don't do this, it, that is not algorithmic recommended? That's when the band recommends their friends thing? Yeah, yeah. When bands recommend on the bottom of their uh, band camp, they have like uh, suggested artists or even, it is sometimes algorithmic because the new band camp um, structure at the bottom has like recommended artists that I think just come from similar genre listings. Mm -hmm. um, but but yeah, if you just sort through enough, you can find some good stuff. And sometimes, yeah, you do have to rely on these algorithmic things where if you go on Spotify and it's like best new music or whatever, um, you, can, you can find some good stuff on there. Yeah. And then it's just about noticing it when you listen to it, noticing that it's something special and then going to research it more and finding out if there really is something good here or maybe it's just a one song that you kind of like. I, I am totally with you. I mean, the funny thing for me is, is my number one way is the, that I find new music is that uh, YouTube plays me the next song and I don't get up and hit stop it. And I'm like, oh, this is really good. So it is funny for me, but I put very little effort into finding new music at this point because I've already have such a long list from what I see like you guys and uh, Washed Up Emo tweeting about. So I'm like, okay, I got enough on the list that if I'm going to do this, I'm just going to listen to what I've already written down from Twitter. Yeah, well, Twitter, Twitter has been a great way to find music just because you can even not, you can follow publications that you like, but also just sometimes writers um, that just post about things that they're interested in. And if you can find some writers that have sort of similar taste to, that, to yours, then you can really start um, finding it. And, and I also love when bands recommend other bands, mm. you know, because that's when I'm like, okay, somebody who actually writes music isn't a fan of this. So um, that's, that's a good way too. But it, it just takes time just sorting through. And um, I think everyone on the alternative staff has put in the hours to sort of find these, these diamonds in the rough, but it's, it's worth it when you can find something really cool and uh, find, find out that if you post about it, maybe somebody else will get into it and the band might uh, at least get a little bit of a benefit. So. Nice. 
So you recently wrote a really great article on the Blurred Lines case, which if people aren't familiar, is a lawsuit between Marvin Gaye, Robin Thicke, and Pharrell about the song Blurred Lines and how they supposedly copied a Marvin Gaye song. Can you explain why this is so such an important case to everybody? Oh, wow. Well, this case, this case, yeah, like you said, it seems pretty standard, normal pop song getting sued by an older one. But what happened in this case that was really interesting was that the courts found that even though there was no identical copying um, on, the, on the Robin Thicke song, it sounded enough like the old Marvin Gaye song, that they were going to count it as an infringement, Um, which is a big deal because it means that you don't have to exactly copy something anymore. If your music just sounds like something else, uh, you can get sued and and maybe lose, and maybe lose a big percentage of your song. Um, Robin Thicke lost 50% of the songwriting uh, in in his track. Yeah, that's half, half of all the songwriting rights which was already split up between him and Pharrell and another songwriter, got transferred to Marvin Gaye in the state, and all the money that comes from that, all the licensing money, right? So after this ruling, no, nobody really knows, well, wait, like, I didn't copy this song, but obviously I was influenced by it. Like, that's exactly what Pharrell and Robin Thicke tried to say, was that, was that they were influenced by uh, Marvin Gaye, but they didn't actually copy the song, um, and the court still felt that that was enough because there was all of this drama behind the trial and Robin Thicke isn't exactly a very sympathetic figure. <laughs> um, so it led to this situation now where other lawyers and other older artists are seeing this ruling and they say, wait, there's a ton of songs that sound like my hits, you know? And uh, it's leading to now Bruno Mars, especially with these new like oh yeah pop songs that he's been putting out. He's been getting sued. Almost every single has been getting sued. And it's just, it's led to this big issue because, yeah, I understand what the court is trying to do. They don't want people to sort of get away with stealing from past artists. But on the same hand, you're going to allow a situation where every single pop song that gets that comes out is going to get sued and all the money is going to be wasted on these legal fees. And really the only ones who are going to benefit from this are the lawyers, which... I mean, I'm aware, but still, I, I don't want to see that happen. But that's Sorry. not what you want to do with your time. Yeah, exactly. And and that's not that's not why the good music lawyers at least got into this. They didn't they didn't want to. Oh, I just want to spend my day finding pop songs that I can I can get. All you all you need to do these days too is just send out a letter that says we're considering suing you. Did you see the blurred lines ruling? You're going to lose all this money. So instead, just give us like twenty percent. You know. And, and you, can, you can get a, a lot out of that, but on the same hand, like, you don't want new artists that are supposedly the, the face of the industry right now to be losing all their songwriting to lawsuit uh, and to sort of create this chain where now the modern pop artists are what? Are they going to sue the next generation? I, I don't really think that's what we want. Well, I, I think even, you know, as somebody who wrote a book on creativity and spent four years researching it, the discouragement you're going to have, like while some people would be like, oh, well, this will encourage people to be more uh, unique, it's not encouraging that even if you think you're being unique, uh, they could do it. And then that most music is 
that's good usually is playing off of something they liked and they said, oh, you know, I like this emotion. Let me put a new spin on it. But if it doesn't go far enough away or if you accidentally do it, like, you know, there's been like this very big talk about that, like whether the money leaving the music business really discourage some people from pursuing it. Like I've definitely seen with bands that have been in my studio that they kind of hit 23, 24 years old and they go, ah, this didn't work out. I better run. Whereas, you know, most people would not give up even until 29. And then you think about how most bands really hit in their later twenties is like when they get their late success. So we're losing all these artists. And I, I just get worried that this is going to discourage so many people from being creative because you're just like, oh, well, what's the sense? Because I'm just going to get sued by somebody who has more money than me to protect their legacy. Yeah, yeah. And that's sort of compounding on all these other problems that right now that are going on in the music industry where it's so hard to make a living. And the last thing that these artists want to deal with is getting sued more often. Mm. Um, I, think, I think one big uh, misunderstanding in the public is that a lot of these six so-called successful like pop stars and rap stars and even rock stars have tons and tons of money. Mm -hmm. uh, really, they really don't anymore, even less than they did in the nineties and before. Um, and when they're losing even more from uh, like lawsuits and just generally not having good record deals and streaming royalties, not being as good as they could, a lot of people just can't do it. But at a certain age, right. When you want to have a family and, and you want to just, grow in, in your career, uh, the, the amount of touring that they have to do to survive and the, the small amount of money and the inconsistency of that money uh, mm. is really just leading people to drop out. Like you said, if this was any other industry, uh, you would just be hitting your prime when you're in your late 20s and early 30s. Um, but in, in, in music, and especially in rock music right now, uh, a lot of people are dropping out because they just see that it isn't a sustainable path for them. Hey, I want to tell you real quick about a company I'm involved with now. They're called Manic Merch. What I want you to do is stop selling merch like an idiot. In 10 minutes, you can upload designs and sell merch on your own store with every popular merch item available. Manic Merch will handle the sales, shipping, customer service issues, so you can be free to create and not be bothered while still profiting the way you would if you did it yourself. Manic Merch is perfect for musicians, movies, YouTubers, podcasts, meme makers, startups, and anyone else who has good ideas for merch designs. Let me tell you a little bit more. You can set up a store in minutes for no money down. Other merch companies make you order a ton of merch first. You can sell to your customers and only pay for the merch that gets printed. That's how we keep rates so low. Fans buy more merch when they get to choose how to express themselves. Once you upload a design, a fan can put it on any merch item they want, as well as any color they want, and all sorts of things like hoodies, lighters, etc., etc. You can set your own price and choose how much you profit. You can lower prices if you want to sell more, raise them if you want to make more. You also get the email of every single person who buys from you. So you can email everyone when you have new releases. You could also track sales, and you get paid on time each month. I really encourage you to check out Manic Merch. I think what we're doing is really cool. So without any further ado, here's the podcast. Yes. So I, I think you bring up a really interesting thing that I'd love to get your perspective on. Is like, you know, like literally like I think about like the article headlines I've seen on Twitter this week are Cardi B loses $460,000 uh, on her Coachella performance. And then Takashi 69 is saying that he has $12 million in the bank. 
and you're like, hmm, I don't know what to think of this here, because then you look at, like, the metric I like to use is monthly, monthly listeners on Spotify, and it's such an interesting thing, because then you're looking, you're going, hmm, well, I see a pretty big disparity. You know, obviously, Cardi B has many more listeners than Takashi 69 and then you look at how insane the disparity is between, like, bands in our scene. Like, you know, I work really closely with the Somos guys, and, like, I often will do math based off of how many monthly listeners they have, comparing it to somebody else, and you're like, oh, cool, like a mid-level band in, like, the metal scene that's just doing kind of okay may have ten times more than an emo band, but then an EDM band that's barely popular has a hundred times more listeners than a mid-level emo band. Um, what are you seeing in the realities of what people can expect from a living in this now? It is tough, and there's a, there's a writer, David Turner, who writes for Track Record, and he's been sort of tracking the uh, Spotify play, playlists and uh, like how they affect different types of artists. And one of the things I talked to him about with was that the hip-hop playlist, if you get on a top, like top whatever hip-hop playlist, you're getting millions and millions of plays. For a rock artist, if you get on the top number one rock playlist on Spotify, that might be worth, I don't know, 400,000 plays. Which sounds like a lot, but in terms of streaming revenue, it isn't really doable. And uh, it also ha has this weird thing where in a rock band, out of the streaming revenue, you're probably having to pay four or five people. Mm -hmm. um, while a rapper, probably just going to one or maybe two, you know? So there's less that they have to split up. Um, but but like you said, all these, all these rap artists that say, oh, I just got... $12 million uh, signing bonus. Yeah, that's all recoupable, and you're never going to see any profits from your music, so that $12 million, which gets split up between your management team and, and your all this, that has to last you for the whole length of your contract. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, okay, do, do you really have $12 million? Did you ever even have $12 million? And is that, is that sustainable for your whole life? That's probably the only money that you're going to see out of this. So, uh, and, and there are so many costs that people don't anticipate, like with that Cardi B performance where she was losing oh, almost half a million dollars to perform. And with, these, with the Super Bowl halftime show, I know that the artists who put those on often lose lots of money to play the Super Bowl. Mm. And it's like, it's like, there isn't as much money here as people assume that there is, but a lot of artists don't want to let that on because they want to seem very successful and they are in some ways very successful. Like Cardi B has the number one album right now. Yes. Um, so she's succeeding, but financially it, it isn't as the, 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 the peak of financial, like financial success in music is much lower. Um, in other ways though, Streaming has at least allowed where if you're just a tiny band, at least you are getting some streams, you are getting a check, but is that really enough for you to be a full-time musician or just to continue to do it as a hobby? I don't know. Yeah, it seems like for most people it's the um, maybe continue to do it as a hobby and uh, fund some of the next recording and the keyword in that sentence being some of the next recording, um, which is pretty damn bleak, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a lot of bands where if you actually looked at the numbers uh, of all the costs that go in and all the, all the amount that they spend touring and, and on like, like expenses for food and everything, where they're basically breaking even 
And that, these are bands that have lots of fans, which is going back to the Spotify thing, why I think that we need to try and find some sustainable model in this industry because uh, we, we don't want a situation where even successful bands are basically not being rewarded um, because it will lead to less music. And right now it seems like we have a lot of music, and we do, um, but the quality is going to decrease over time if it's never rewarded financially. Yeah, and I think it's also just the thing of like, you know, I remember reading a thing of um, Harvard did a study on creators, and they say that when you first start creating psychologically you're motivated by the work it's just that you enjoy doing it but then when you actually do get good at it if you don't get compensated you get angry and you feel it's unjust and you lose your motivation and i do really worry that this whole thing of no one really actually getting paid anymore and not having that is going to not motivate people to want to stay in the music business yeah and and it's stretching to all different areas of the music business too like for instance, people that run small venues or run small booking agencies, the amount of money that they're seeing is very small. So, yeah, they might really love what they do, and a lot of these bands really love what they do. Uh, but at a certain point, credit card expenses pile up, school loans pile up, and you're thinking, well, if I'm going to do this for another five years, I'm never going to be able to move out or like get out of my hometown or even own property or anything that seems kind of crazy now for millennials like oh wow imagine if i could own a house mm -hmm. so with with these bands it's just like that they are not being really rewarded and they do love what they do but that doesn't mean that our whole system should take advantage of that uh and just let them starve while they're doing their best work we want to encourage that they can keep doing it. Yes, t totally. And, you know, it is a funny thing, too, of that, like, people, I don't think, see that because now it's been, I mean, like, conceivably, we're now almost 20 years into the decline of revenue in the music business. And while it is rising again, people don't realize that, like, Owning a venue used to mean that you were a rich person in town, not the struggling person who's supporting a scene. And uh, like my, when I worked at clubs, it's like you could easily make a big six-figure income a year being a club owner without a problem. And now, <laughs> I don't know anyone who's doing that. Yeah, now, now it's like if you can break even and and the, they don't like lock you out and not and you can't afford your rent then you're doing well. That's a successful venue. And those spaces are so needed because, I mean, I love music and I love going to shows and the harder you make it for those things to exist, especially in cities like New York and even in North Jersey now where the rents keep increasing and it gets more and more difficult to do that. And, and you even see it spreading to record labels now too, where a lot of these smaller record labels are either closing down or doing small releases and even bigger record labels are starting to uh, feel some of the strain. And so what is, so is now, if they're getting all these streaming revenues, what do you see that strain from? Is that more of that this is just needs to be a bigger number model? Is it the fact that people are listening to less rock music? Like, what do you see that being from? Well, I think, I think a lot of it is that while the revenues have sort of decreased and the vinyl explosion happened for a while and now it's sort of like still increasing a little bit but leveling off a bit and people 
labels start to look into the future and they say, well, I'm spending this much on each release. I'm getting back this much. I don't know if I'm really doing any better than a lot of these artists. Maybe I'll just sit back on the, the streaming royalties that I already have, um, take those percentages that I already have on my back catalog and just sort of lay low and just take in some profits. And, and, and you see these bigger labels, like, like major labels, they're doing okay off the streaming like because they can control the playlist. Mm. But when you get into the middle, the middle range of labels that don't have that much sway on playlisting, they, they can do some big releases, but if a few don't go well in a row, then they don't have any budget for the next one, and then it starts to get like, why am I, why am I doing this? Or, or maybe I'll do one rest release next year, or maybe I'll just not do vinyl anymore. And uh, one label, okay. Like, if that happens to a few labels, okay, that's fine. There's, there's new ones that will pop up. But when, like you said, that's a trend over 20 years, slowly but surely, uh, there's fewer of those labels that are in that range that are really willing to take a chance on artists that they know are not going to be like the next big thing. Yeah. And, it, you know, it is funny because, you know, you keep kind of going back to this playlist thing and it is it's kind of just hitting me in this conversation of like, man, the the, the power over playlists, you know, I, I had a conversation with a friend the other day and they talked about a major label staffing and uh, they said four people work in radio promotions now, but 60 people work at, uh, related to playlists. Yeah, there, there, are, there are whole groups of people whose only job is to try and get these people who run the playlist to... Uh, get their songs in there and when it when it's a major label they're able to get those songs in there day one it's released it's all of a sudden on all the biggest playlists when instead if it's a smaller label if even if their song is just as good they're not going to have the connections they're not going to be able to get it on the big playlist they might be lucky if it slowly rises up through the other playlists then then they might have a hit but it's very, very difficult. So we, we, I feel like we've been very pessimistic uh, throughout this and doing a lot of complaint. Where, where, where do you, do you, do, do you see hope in any of uh, this that, uh, are you seeing any good trends in music? Well, all right. I try not to be pessimistic. I think I, there, there are, there are a lot of good trends because the music coming out right now is great. Yes. When you see, when you see the diversity too, that's increasing in music, um, gender diversity and like racial diversity and just diversity in the genres of music that are being created. I think it's better than ever. And there are so many creative people out there right now who they just love it so much that even if things aren't going so well financially, they don't care. They just want to keep making music. And the way that everyone has access to all that music now, huge, mm -hmm. um, in ways that people before never really could. Um, in terms of actually improving the financial situation, uh, there are some uh, encouraging signs. There has been um, the Music Modernization Act wow, mm, yes. has, has uh, recently been working its way through the legislatures, and that one will sort of help a little bit with songwriting royalties and make sure songwriters are compensated a little better. Um, so at least we're starting to see the, the uh, federal I don't, think, I, don't, I don't think a lot of people know what, uh, what what's in that Music Modernization Act. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and explain it to everybody? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of like inside baseball, super complex uh, con uh, royalty percentage stuff. But basically what they're trying to do is 
set up a, a new organization, kind of like Sound Exchange or ASCAP or BMI, but just to collect a very specific royalty from streaming services um, that hasn't been really been collected very well so far. And the idea is that this will be a new royalty that will be paid directly to songwriters um, and compensate them a little better. And then in, in, in the same connection to that, they have been talking about raising the royalty percentage for songwriters. Um, right now, it, it's each, each song gets paid uh, one, one royalty paid for the master recording, which goes to the band, and then one royalty that gets paid uh, directly to the songwriter. And the songwriter royalty, for whatever reason right now, is much lower than the royalty that gets paid to the band. And the idea of that was that the songwriters used to get the majority of radio airplay, and so this was to offset radio airplay uh, for years being where these songwriters made the thing. And that's why we always see all these articles that are like, I had this song that sold 2 million copies and I got 13 cents for it, uh, articles come from. Yeah, well, like FM radio and AM radio only paid the songwriter. And I think that's still exactly how it is. They, they're talking about changing that. So yeah, when streaming came out, they said, oh, this system on streaming, we should pay the band a lot more than the songwriter. Um, but where that becomes a problem is that there are a lot of songs where the songwriter and the, the band are completely different people. Yes. Uh, so if, if you're a songwriter, I've heard a lot of pop songwriters behind the scenes start to talk about this, where since your royalty is so much lower than the band's royalty even, in the only way that you're going to see a lot of money from a hit song is if you get like huge licensing opportunities like commercials or if your song is like one of the most streamed ones on Spotify. If you just put out a song that does fairly well, maybe it has a million plays, that isn't going to be enough as a songwriter for you to sustain yourself if you're not getting any of these other uh, revenue streams, right? Because the songwriter, if they weren't involved in the actual recording, they just wrote the song, they're not going to be the one who got on tour uh, selling T-shirts, right? That This is the only money that they're going to get. Uh, yeah, and I, I definitely think it's a good thing. The other thing I like in the Music Modernization Act is uh, us record producers will also get a, get a percentage, which uh, I'm definitely very into. Um, yeah, I, I, was listening, I was listening to some of your past podcasts, and I was thinking about that, that in, in especially rock music, but also rap music has been talked about a lot more recently, is that producers are, are really not getting uh, what they deserve because those royalty points that they might be getting a few points here and there aren't really worth as much anymore, and uh, they aren't really always seeing that money back. Yeah, and because we're, you know, it's, like, so funny because, like, obviously a lot of this stuff we're talking about, like, with, like, the uh, home ownership and student loans, it's, like, you know, there's so much of this capitalism to be blamed and, like, part of this is the, like, thing, too, that uh, we don't really have a union amongst us that where we can bargain collectively against record labels and what has basically happened to us is every record label has found ways in our contracts to no longer give us the points we used to be paid like the points i get on records i do in 2000 let's call it 12 on compared to the way that they were calculated on records i did in 2002 to 2012 it's literally like i'm getting uh 30 to 40 percent less uh, in the way that they're calculated. Yeah, yeah, and in the way that it's calculated and also in the way that a lot of the times a producer doesn't really have uh, that much power in the negotiation over these things. Uh, they, you, you might have 
accepted the deal and then it sort of gets wrapped up in the label deal somehow and then you didn't really you weren't weren't really a part of that negotiation and next thing you know the producer is of course the one who's making the least money um but but when you said about capitalism and there are a lot of issues with our system our capitalistic system that uh don't reward the arts as much as they should Mm -hmm. but it's also important to know that if you look back in history where there was just an overall recession, like, in, for instance, during the Great Depression, mm-hmm. the music industry is one of the biggest industries that would suffer because when it comes down to it and the people don't have that much money, uh, the number one thing they're going to pay for is, like, rent and food and whatever they need to actually survive. And if the option is to pay for, like, music or food, they're going to go with food. So, mm-hmm. so going to concerts, not as many people are able to go to concerts anymore. Not as many people are able to shell out big tickets for music festivals. And when it comes down to things like we talked about, uh, buying MP3s as sort of a donation to a band, if, if you don't have any money, that's not something that you're able to do. So uh, I think with all these things we're talking about, we're talking about the royalty rates being lower and not as many people signing up for streaming services. We also have to remember this is tied to the whole economy and if things were doing better for everyone there might be a little more room for all these people in the industry to breathe a little bit yes and i I think that's the big thing too is that like i you know while we've all gotten really excited about the vinyl comeback like that only exists because the economy is good and if this shithead we have running the ship right now fucks that up that's all gone yeah 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 people do get really excited and say oh, we're starting to sell vinyl numbers again. And it's like, well, that's pretty tenuous. People, people, are, people are buying vinyl right now, but they don't have to buy vinyl to listen to music. They don't have to buy like merch to listen to the music anymore. So uh, if, if things get a little worse, yeah, that's one of the first things that people are going to stop buying. And, and that's also, if you look at the top selling vinyl records, it's all these like super mainstream like, yeah. uh, old releases or... Uh, like, like a repressing of a Beatles record. Yeah, or, I, 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 the statistics something like the best-selling record on vinyl every year for twelve of the last twenty years is always a Beatles vinyl. Yeah, and and that and that has a lot to do with those are the people right now who have money. Yeah, the, the young people are struggling. There's all these things going on, and the jobs aren't very good, and they they don't have enough time to be buying a hundred vinyl records, but. The older people who have pretty secure jobs and they already have paid for a house and everything, yeah, they can buy as many Beatles records as they want, but it's not helping today's uh, artists to survive. Yeah, this is the thing I, I, I always get mad about when I go to museums. My girlfriend looks at me like, okay, this rent again of like the thing of that. You have all these richest people who are buying art, but they only do it when these people die. <laughs> so they yeah. live in squalor and then it's like, oh, let's celebrate them. They're dead. You didn't help them while they were alive with your money. You help them when they're fucking dead. <laughs> yeah, and, and and that happens in music all the time. And it, like with uh, Lil Peace died recently. Yes, and he was doing fairly well before his passing. But as soon as he passed away, oh, now everything, every every song he put out is a music video and everything. And it's like if if people support these artists while they're here, and if and if the industry had a little bit of better. Uh, medical care and, and healthcare for these artists, then we wouldn't have these issues, and we would we would be able to encourage people to produce more art. 
rather than just take advantage of it once they're gone. Why don't you tell people where they can find you and do a little self-promotion on the things you have going on? All right, self-promotion number one. <laughs> um, so so I, I run my own law firm now. Uh, my website is hcolelaw.com. Uh, so if you need a lawyer, then you can contact me. But uh, also you should check out uh, The Alternative, which is a music blog that I run. We'll talk about a little bit on that. And uh, that's at getalternative.com. And uh, we promote a lot of music on there. And mostly those are the two main things that take up my life these days. And uh, one thing I do want to promote is there's a bunch of cool bands right now that you should check out. Um, Nervous Dater, Julian Baker, Tancred, uh, Soccer Mommy, Loving Soccer Mommy. Yeah, same. I uh, just got into that last week. Such a good record. Yeah, everyone's loving that one. And like you said, the alternative being on things a little early her first EP, I was, I was loving it. Everyone was, I was saying, everyone listened to this. Her new album came out, and I was, I was even blown away. I didn't mm. even think that it would ever get to that level. And now even, like, the New York Times was talking about it. That, that's really a great one. So, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, working on that. Um, and then also just, uh, I guess, just go out there. And when you're, when you're, if you're not going to be doing my stuff, if you're not going to be going to my websites, uh, support the support the local music scene in the city where you live so uh, that these small venues and small bands can survive. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.